0: Go ahead and turn or tap your way to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 1 together, verses 1 through 13. My name is Isaac. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, that's on me. Uh, so introduce yourself, and we'll get to know one another. I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and I don't get to preach too often. Uh, I get to today because Ryan is out of town getting some much needed. R with his wife, Erin, so... Mazel Tov, dude! Um, But this is my first time actually getting to address and to preach to people in like over a year, so I'm really stoked. I'm excited to see the upper halves of your faces. Um, Maybe I'll get to recognize you someday, like with the masks off. Maybe I'll ask you to put your mask back on, like afterwards, because like I can only recognize people with their masks now. But anyway, so today we're going to be talking about a mystery, and what I would like to do is. I would like to add an eighth sin to the list of seven deadly sins. Okay, you guys know the seven deadly sins, right? Greed and jealousy and sloth, I think, is one of them. That's mine. Um, but my, I would add an eighth. And the, the eighth deadly sin would be movie spoilers. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yes? Amen. Andy Rosco. thank you so much. Can you imagine what it would have been like in 1980... If you were going to see The Empire Strikes Back and some guy walking out of the theater goes, I can't believe Darth Vader is Luke's father, you would have been like, how hard would you have punched that person in the face? (laughs) So hard, right? Have you, it's like you go to the movies with someone and like maybe some of you here like make films or study films and like you know all of the tropes and so you ruin films for all of your friends, like that guy's gonna die, that guy like, He's a double agent. He's going to double cross him. She's going to fall in love with him. And you're like, shut up, right? Ruining movies is like the worst thing ever. Like, and the worst kind of movie spoiler is when someone reveals the plot twist, right? The unexpected part of the story that's been building the entire time. Elements of a good plot twist are actually that the character and the viewer are discovering the mystery of the story organically together. You're discovering things along with the main character. And the storyteller is gradually revealing something that has been planned from the very beginning of the movie. Just as an article I read uh, this week says, that mystery went exactly as I predicted and that made me happy, said no one ever. (laughs) Right? Anybody have to watch the sixth sense knowing that bruce willis was dead the whole time anyone anyone ruin it for you it sucked right the movie was completely different it's this is what happens okay but we actually what i would like us to do today is to apply that logic to the story that god is telling and we don't we have difficulty trusting god because we believe that he is holding out on us. He is omniscient, he's all-knowing, and so we believe that because he knows everything, there's something that he's not telling us that we deserve to know. And the short answer is, there isn't something God is keeping from us. There's a million things, (laughs) right? He knows everything, but God is not a puppeteer. God is a master storyteller. And our greatest desire is to be caught up in a story. That's why we love going to the movies, why we love playing video games, we love reading books, because we want to be immersed in a great story. But if we're honest, we don't want to surrender our script to God for rewrites. If we had things our way, we would love if God just ruined the plot of our lives halfway through. Like, this is what's going to happen to you, the end. You're going to be like, well, that was boring. We want that because we want to be in control, but what we actually want is to live a great story. We would rather spoil our story sometimes than live a great story. We would rather avoid the incidents that propels us into rising action that leads to conflict, that leads to climax. And we would rather kind of live in series of almost fairy tales that fall flat because we love to pursue lesser dreams and visions of comfort and security and leisure and mild happiness, but we need to see that God has the authority and the discretion to reveal things at the right time. This mystery is not being discovered by us like we're detective. It's it's being unfolded by God, the master storyteller, and that's what we're going to see today. God's skillfulness in telling a story is knowing what needs to be revealed at the right time. The plot twist happens at the moment that creates the greatest amount of satisfaction in those experiencing the story. So this week, Paul is going to go off on this rabbit trail in the middle of the book. Like He's going to start a thought and then go, wait a minute, I need to give you the backstory here. He's going to talk about the all-important plot twist in human history, this mystery that's been revealed by God that gives us a window into the way that God works in our own lives and in the church collectively. So we're gonna read Ephesians chapter three starting in verse one, and we're gonna read it with this second person plural as we have been. As Lorenzo said, uh, Paul was addressing a group of people, so instead of saying you, because English language has no second person plural, we're gonna say y'all, okay? So, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it's going to be on the screen. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of y'all Gentiles, assuming that y'all have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for y'all, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When y'all read this, y'all can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask y'all not to lose heart over what I am suffering for y'all, which is y'all's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we sit together today collectively to hear from you, to hear from your word, and to expect your spirit to move. So as we sit and ponder this mystery that you have revealed through your word and through Paul, I pray that your spirit would stir up our thoughts to our own stories, our own scripts, and collectively, our own story that we're living together And what you would like to reveal to us today about what you're doing. And I pray that we would submit our minds and our wills and our hearts to you to do whatever you want. And that we would respond with obedience and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul goes off. He says, for this reason. And then he never gets to the reason that he was going to say. This is classic Paul. He goes off like run-on sentences. There are only two sentences actually in the Greek in this whole text that we just read, but it's like 14 verses. It's insane, right? So he goes, for this reason, and then next week we're going to pick up in verse 14, and he's going to continue with for this reason and get to what he was talking about ahead of time. But he goes off on a tangent because he needs to give us the backstory to something because he says in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And this is the first time that he introduces us to the concept that he is writing this from prison. And he goes, wait a minute, I need to tell you why this is happening. Why the backstory? Well, because most of the people that he's writing to didn't actually know him, and In that culture, it was an honor and shame culture. So you would not listen to somebody who was writing to you or speaking to you who had been in prison because they had lost their honor. There's no reason you should listen to somebody who is like speaking to you from a prison cell. In their culture, it means like you've done something wrong. Like something that you did actually led you to this point where you're in prison and so why should I have to listen to you? But... He's answering this question for the Gentile audience that he's been speaking to this whole time. Gentiles means nations, or basically everybody who's not Jewish. Okay, so that's all of you guys, (laughs) because I am. But back then... Sorry, no, that's not no shade I'm throwing on you guys. But anyway, Gentiles just means nations. In, in the Jewish community today, we say the word goyim, which is like the Hebrew word for nations. It just means pretty much everybody else because that was their worldview back then. The world was bifurcated into two it was Jews and Gentiles. And what Paul just got finished telling us in chapter two, what we looked at last week, was that there is no bifurcation anymore. For those who are in Christ, every separation, every every dividing wall that has divided us as people groups, whatever that is, Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, slave-free, those have been obliterated by the work of Jesus on the cross. And now, if we are in him, then we are one. There is nothing separating us from one another anymore. We have that unity, and it is a real spiritual unity. It is not fake. It is not imagined. It actually exists. And so what he needs to assure his Gentile audience of today is that he actually has the authority to say that, that he wasn't just, like, pulling one over on them. Can, can we trust what you're saying, Paul? even though you're in prison, doesn't that mean that you took a wrong turn? And we often take that for granted, right? If you've been in the church, you read the New Testament, you read a letter from Paul, you're like, oh yeah, he was always in prison. That's like just where he went on his writer's retreats to like write these letters, right? Oh, I just get so much more done, like just lock yourself away in the prison cell. That's not true at all. So he he was in prison. There was a couple different times that he was in prison. So most likely he's in prison in Rome at this point, but a lot of the early church actually struggled with his influence. Like, why should we listen to this guy? Imagine if we, like, brought a guest preacher in here, and Lorenzo is, like, introducing him. He's like, yeah, he, he like, preached. He was a, a pastor in New Jersey for about 10 years at this church, and he had three years jail time, and then he released a new book last year. Let's welcome him right now. We'd be like, what? Can you go back to that other part? Like, but we have to understand what he's saying, and he's actually not going to like point to his credentials and say, look how great I am, you have to listen to me. He's gonna say that the reason that he's there is actually because it's part of God's plan. That he can say that him being in prison is according to God's will. Did you notice in verse one, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, not of Rome, not of the Jewish leaders in the temple who actually put him there. The reason that he was in prison in the first place was because the Jewish leadership says, oh, he's been bringing Gentiles into the temple, which was against the Jewish law, it was against Torah. He didn't do that, but the accusation was there because he had spent so much time hanging out with Gentiles, which is not something that Jews would have done. Because he believed what he said. He believed that there is no more separation. There is no wall dividing us anymore. So that accusation is what got him thrown in prison. But he says, I'm not in prison because of the Roman Empire. I'm not in prison because of the Jewish authorities. I'm in prison because Christ wants me here. He's already made it clear that the Gentiles, the Goyim, are not second-class citizens in God's family. They're not less important stones in God's building project. And now he will assure them of this by explaining how their inclusion into the family of God was not some afterthought. Like, oh, we got to do something about the Gentiles now that Jesus is here. No, this is the fullest expression of God's plan since the very beginning of time. And what he calls that is a mystery. Read with me in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He's referring to the earlier part of Ephesians. When y'all read this, y'all can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So once again, we're referring to this mystery as kind of like the great plot twist in human history. This mystery is not like a detective story. It's not like Who Done It, and we have to like go with our magnifying glasses and figure out what God was doing. No, the, the word mystery here is that it's God's prerogative to reveal the parts of the story at the right time. It's a plot twist. It's not secret knowledge only available to like the select few who are really in the know. It's not like some weird culty thing. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about progressive revelation, which is a theological concept that means God reveals more and more of who he is and what he's doing in human history progressively throughout history to tell this story. So what's the deal with God concealing the story for so long? He gives us that clue in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That phrase basically means everything had been set up perfectly just for this moment in history the foundation of the story had been told, the stage had been set, and there was one more puzzle piece that was left. I know I'm mixing my metaphors, but basically the whole world was ready for Jesus to come and for the church to be born. The prophets had spoken in the Old Testament, and they had started to paint a picture, this kind of like mosaic that was put together about who the Messiah would be. And The time was ripe. Now, through the Roman Empire and through the roads and the aqueducts that they had built, the entire known world was accessible. And Paul has made use of this to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. That is a little bit of what he's talking about, that the time is now full for the gospel to come. It was not a mystery that God was like, I'm holding out on you guys. He's like, here it is. It's, it's time. It's ready. And what was that mystery? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles are a part of the church. Woo! Woo! You know why that's not like more exciting to you guys? Because it's like, duh, right? Like Gentile, like Jewish and Gentile today, in our modern view, it's like, well, Jewish people aren't a part of the church and Gentiles are, but that's not what Paul was dealing with back in his day. It was a novelty for Gentiles to become included in God's people. Today, it's like Captain Obvious. Like, especially in the Jewish community, Gentile and Christian is almost like a synonym. Of one another. Like, Gentiles are Christians, are Gentiles. So it's like, houseplants need water regularly. Wash your hands with soap. Like, that's how obvious it sounds to us today that Gentiles would become included in the church. And we take this for granted. But the culture of God's people has been changed radically from what was a majority Jewish church to a multicultural, multi-ethnic reality. But before, and when Paul was writing this, just before, just a few years before he was writing, any Gentile that wanted to become a part of God's people was known as a proselyte and had to go through a process of conversion and starting to follow Torah, to follow Jewish law. In the Jewish mindset in Paul's day, God chose us. God chose the Jewish people. And anyone else is like, they're welcome along for the ride, but you got to get with the program. you got to start doing all the things. But this was a misunderstanding because, and this is like something that, quite honestly, the Jewish community today still does not quite understand and doesn't grapple with. Why was Israel, the people, chosen? Why? Because God's heart was for the nations. Israel was to be a light to the nations. For Israel, they were called to be holy, which means separate, okay? This was the whole thing. And they mistook this means for the goal. The goal wasn't to be holy, to be distinct, to be separate, but to display God's blessing to the world. Holiness, the separateness of the people of Israel was actually for mission, but Israel made it into a matter of privilege and ethnocentrism. You, you see, and I'm, I'm talking here about Israel, the people, not the land. That's really important to understand in modern day like conversation, especially with all of the like explosion of conflict and violence that's happened over the past few weeks. I'm talking about the people group that God chose here. But when they were in their land during the time of the Old Testament, they were on the only natural land bridge. That existed in the ancient world. For trade, for all routes through the ancient world, everybody had to pass through Israel. So God planted them there to be a light to the nation so that when anyone saw this weird people group that wasn't eating the same foods as everyone else, that was like, taking the Sabbath off and everything just shuts down and they weren't mixing the fibers of their clothing. And all these weird rules that we read in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere, you're supposed to see this people group and go, wow, I want to be a part of that. But for Israel, they became fixated on the details of holiness and missed the purpose that it was for others. Have you ever been so focused on the details of something that you miss what the whole thing was about in the first place? Yes, that's all of us, right? But the mystery is that nobody saw this coming, whether it was because we were you know, blinded by our own ethnocentrism or whatever it was. We didn't see God's plan, so that was the plot twist. But it's not just that the Gentiles are welcome into God's people, is that they are welcome as Gentiles, there's nothing. There's no like precursor. There's nothing like prerequisites that Gentiles have to do to become part of God's people, other than to receive God's grace. Because you have to see that in in worshiping God back in the Old Testament, there was a distinction between what was holy and what was common. So holy things were set apart for worship in the temple, like if it was a plate or if it was like a. Uh, like a stick or whatever it was, it had to be holy. And not even all Israel was holy at all, at all times. They had to follow the law in order to be kept pure, to be kept holy for worship. So that definitely means that Gentiles were not considered holy. They were considered common. And like we saw last week, there was actually a derogatory word, slur, that was used for Gentiles by Jews. It was called the uncircumcision. It was like a a racial slur. Paul is saying that not only are you now associating with one another, but that you are one, and that Gentiles are welcome in Christ as Gentiles, without the necessity of being declared holy by the priests. That was how things went back then. If the priest declared you holy, you you were free to come into the presence of God. But now, God has declared anyone in Christ to be holy. And that's what, Paul, that's what God told the Apostle Peter when he gave him three visions in order to give him this idea that Gentiles were now to be welcomed into the church without any prior qualifications. He gave him this crazy vision of like a giant sheet of food that was unkosher. So like Jewish people were not supposed to touch this stuff, okay? And God in the vision said, okay, Peter, kill and eat and he said, absolutely not. I've never touched anything on kosher. And God said, what I have called holy, do not call common. Okay? And he realized that he was talking about people, <laughs> not about kosher food. It was about welcoming in all people. But we actually do this too. We call things common that God has called holy. We create barriers for people to experience God's presence all the time. And in our minds, we write people off as being unworthy or as being over there, others, Gentiles. So maybe this mystery is a a little bit bigger of a deal than it first appears to be. So Paul moves from declaring this great mystery in human history that happened of this unification of Jew and Gentile to the mystery of his own life, his own story. Verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What he's referring to here is his own story, his own testimony, the story of him becoming a follower of Jesus. Paul's backstory was messed up, okay? His backstory is that not only did he not like God's church, but he actually persecuted God's church. As a religious Jew who was a part of this like extremely religious sect called the Pharisees, his mission was to hunt down followers of Jesus, bring them to trial, and ultimately have them killed. This is Paul's backstory. And it was God literally knocking him off his horse on his way to do just that, to put people in chains, to bring them before trial, that God completely changed the direction of his life. He was knocked off his horse. He had a vision of the risen Jesus. And Jesus said that in persecuting my people, you are persecuting me. And the direction of his life changed. That was his plot twist. So when in verse 8, he calls himself the least of all the saints, that's not false humility, He's talking about this grand plot twist of his own life that he used to persecute the very people that he calls family now. Can you imagine that? He's not saying like, oh, poor me, like I was, you know, it's just a bad guy. It was... No, that was a complete redirect in his life. And that, friends, is God's plot twist. That is how God's wisdom works he is the last person you could imagine doing this job. But God's irony, God's wisdom, the part of his plan is to use the weak things to shame the strong, to use foolish things to shame the wise, as Paul would write in another letter. Paul is the last person that you would ever think would be preaching The gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles just in the same way that there's no way that Jewish people would ever think that God would include the Gentiles as Gentiles. They were both unqualified, but it was that lack of qualification that displays God's grace on an even greater scale. This actually got him in trouble when Paul first was preaching Jesus, he went to Jerusalem to meet with some of the leaders of the church, and they were like, I don't wanna to talk to that guy. I know who that guy is. There's no way we're gonna welcome him in here. And Barnabas had to stick out his neck for Paul and say, no, 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 I know. He, he's one of us now, I, I know. I've seen the transformation in his life. So Paul's story, his backstory, almost invalidated his future what God was calling him to do. So Paul has now come to identify with his Gentile audience in an even greater way because he was nearly excluded by the leaders of the church after coming to faith and has now been ostracized by his own people because of his association with Gentiles. That's a plot twist. It would be easier for him to say like, ah, eh, you know what, forget it. Like, I don't have to do it. Like, I'm a believer in Jesus now, that's great. But I'm I'm not gonna do this whole like preaching to Gentiles thing. That's just like too much for me. But actually, it's this very place of foolishness, of lack of qualification, of his messy past, of the pain that happened in his life. The very thing that should disqualify him is what amplifies God's message even more through his life. And this is how things work in God's economy the most impactful Christian of all time, spent his early years killing Christians and his later years in prison. And the same is true for you, friends. The thing that you think disqualifies you is where God wants to pour out more and more grace to amplify the message of his grace more clearly than you could ever make it by trying to compensate for it or conceal that thing. That's the mystery. Now, as a caveat, I'm not talking about making an excuse for ongoing sin in our lives. That's not what I'm saying. Paul addresses that in another letter. And I'm not talking about becoming people who just like, share too much and overshare about your like, drama and your stuff in your life. But the plot twist in our stories is this. God wants to reveal what we'd rather conceal. And the purpose is not to rub our noses in it, but so his grace might shine brighter through you so that others would come to know him. You might say, like, oh, but you don't know what I've done. You're, you know, I've done so much stuff. Was it any worse than hunting down Christians and putting them to death? That's what Paul wants us to see here. Like, I'm the very least, okay? We conceal these things because everything around us in our world conditions us to manage our image. And we're taught that there are some things that if people knew about them would disqualify us and invalidate our ability to to achieve, to become who we want to be. We're taught to put our best foot forward, to present ourselves as being completely self-sufficient, having everything figured out, because your Instagram is your resume now, and your personal brand needs to be on point, and you need the right people to see you looking awesome and successful. But God wants to draw our attention to the things that make us look completely vulnerable and weak. And out of that place... He says, okay, I can work with that. For Paul, it was his past as a persecutor of the church and the reality of his imprisonment, things that he could have concealed in shame, that is what honored God the most. But friends, if we're honest, this is not easy. It takes a tremendous amount of, of honesty and self-awareness and reflection on our life and the story that God is telling in our lives, and what he has brought us through. But these painful moments that we're probably all thinking about right now are the things that become gospel bridges to other people's lives. So Paul talks about this mystery in his own life, and he's going to move on now to the mystery of the church, our collective mystery, verse nine. And to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? That it's through the church that God's wisdom is displayed to the world. And you might be sitting there going, really? (laughs) Really, God? The church? I know I'm not supposed to say this as a pastor and stuff, but like, really? Like, I hope you didn't put all your eggs in one basket, God. Like, maybe you have a plan B somewhere, but absolutely not. As we say here quite often, God has one plan for his church. Plan A is the church. He doesn't have a plan B. But in our culture, the common talking point is that the messiness of the church It shows why this whole God Bible thing is all a sham. Look how messed up these people are. Look at all the divisions that have happened throughout human history. Look at all the evils that have been done in the name of the church. But Paul is trying to get us to see that it's God's church that puts his wisdom on display to the world. And believe me, I know (laughs) the, the challenges that are at stake here. Like as, so as a Jewish person who ministers the gospel to Jewish people, that's like what my main gig is through Jews for Jesus, I, I preach the gospel to Jewish people and have to have conversations on the regular about why would I wanna be a part of this thing that's been associated with the persecution of my people over the past 2,000 years. Tell me why I would wanna be a part of that. I get it. Now, this perspective obviously doesn't take into account the incredible good that has been done through the church throughout history. We can point to a lot of things. Hospitals, schools, medicine, scientific discovery, the existence of human rights, the abolition of slavery. All of these things are good, but Paul isn't even talking about those things, the good things that the church eventually would accomplish. He's talking about what the church is and less about what it would do. The fact that the church is a place where all Not a place where, but a people who, where, where all peoples, no matter what you are, Jew, Gentile, black, white, slave, free, male, female, all come together and are one. And that this blasts a message to the world. And that is God's wisdom. The plot twist is that God created a church as a unified people of former enemies, not a superficial unity, but a true spiritual unity because of what Jesus did. And this revealed mystery shows God's wisdom to, what does he say? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Okay, this, is, this might be where some of you want to check out, but listen to this, okay? This is important. There is an unseen realm that is being testified to by the existence of the church. Ryan talked about this a couple weeks ago, that there are powers at work in this world, hell-bent on destroying what God has created. Spiritual evil twisting the goodness of God's creation until it is unrecognizable, until it is distorted. And one of God's, God's masterpieces is the church. So doesn't that make sense why the strategy of these spiritual powers is to corrupt this creation of God. This is the way that it happens in the world. When God has called something good, God has created something, these powers, these spiritual entities, promote half-truths and distort the truth of God's creation, effectively blinding the world to God's goodness. And this is how it happened in the garden at the very beginning. You remember the story, how the serpent led the woman to believe that God was not telling her the whole story. God is holding out on you. There's a fruit that you shouldn't eat, and that meant that God was not telling you the whole story. He's holding out on you, and all you need to do is be in control of your own story. Just eat the fruit. You won't die, at least not immediately, but it's just a spoiler, (laughs) And these institutions that God has created are the target of this spiritual attack, the church being the foremost. There are earthly authorities and structures that have opposed the church in the past, yes, but behind those are actually spiritual ones. Tim Gombus, in his commentary on Ephesians, puts it this way. He says, the powers, these spiritual authorities, have ordered the present evil age in such a way as to exacerbate the divisions within humanity, the very thing that God's church seeks to remedy. God confounds them by creating in Christ one unified multiracial body consisting of formerly divided groups of people. This plot twist is that God, as the master storyteller, has created one central story in which all of our individual stories can be wrapped up into and connected. We want to believe and continue to believe that each of us individually has ultimate authority over our own script, over our own story, like Eve in the garden. We perpetually believe the lie that God is holding out on us. He's not telling us something. And so we eat the fruit over and over again, spoiling the plot of God's good story. But in Christ, we become part of a bigger story, the church. Like last week, we become part of God's building project as different stones. Just as in a good movie where there's like lots of plots that you don't quite see how they connect until the very end when they all come together, like Crash or like every episode of This Is Us or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> they seem to do that every time. There's a revelation that needs to happen, an unveiling of the way that things actually are to see How the church testifies of the wisdom of God. The meaning of the word apocalypse is actually to unveil, to reveal, to see the world for what it really is. And what is most true of us in Christ is this collective identity. That we are parts of a body. That we are all part of the same story together. It is through what the church is as well as what it does and says that reveals God's wisdom. And friends, this is so different. The way that God, God's plan works is so incredibly different from what we are taught. We are taught that power and wisdom and authority is displayed by having the right image, the right brand presence, by having influence. You need clever messaging, good design, getting in front of the right people, This is how we think movements start. This is how we think that big things happen in our world. And Paul is sitting there in prison going, sure, knock yourself out. (laughs) That's not how God works. This is how God's wisdom actually works. Paul is in a situation that perfectly carries out his plan. This letter that we're reading today will become one of the most widely read documents in all of human history, and it started in a jail cell. Because the way that God spreads his message hinges on a mystery. He says, my ways are not your ways. And if we don't get anything else today, I want us to get this. Understand how our commitment to being part of the local church, this local expression of this mystery, displays a greater message to the world than if we started a podcast that got a million subscribers tomorrow. That's just not how it works. The revelation of God's wisdom does not happen by gaining cultural influence or power. And if you're sitting here thinking, that makes absolutely no sense, then maybe you're starting to grasp that the mystery is indeed a mystery. When there's a reasonable explanation for why something is successful, it's easier to write it off. But when a teenage shepherd boy wins a war by defeating a nine foot tall giant with a slingshot, (laughs) everyone else knows that there's something else going on. And that is true of the church as well. When you lean in to your local church family, especially at a time when everyone around you is giving up, you are living into the greatest mystery in human history the greatest story that could ever be told. You are participating in God's wisdom, blasting bright light in the face of all evil, trying to tear the church apart, shining like a beacon of hope in the world. The local church is the hope of the world, (laughs) testifying to all the powers in the world that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. So he moves from the mystery of the church to where it all started, the mystery of Christ. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him this eternal purpose. It means God had planned it all along and it has now been fully realized, fully executed perfectly in the story of Christ. This mystery that we've been talking about is most poignant in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Nowhere else does this plot twist of God's wisdom and power look so foolish and weak than in a bloody, failed Messiah hanging on a cross. That's what his friends thought. Standing there in front of him and in that moment on the cross, it wouldn't make sense to us either. Like, what are you doing there, Jesus? Don't you know that's not how you start a movement Don't you know that's not how the world is going to be changed, how things are going to be influenced, how you gain the power that you need to wield and influence and access the authority that's possible? You were so close. But at that very moment, when it looked like Jesus was defeated, sin was being defeated, Your brokenness was being mended by his brokenness. Death was being swallowed in victory. When all hope had failed, he burst out of the tomb. And Jesus' story, we find our plot twist. In his plot twist, his death and his resurrection into glory, his victory, we find our victory. And now, because of that, Paul says, we have boldness and access. Literally, the word is free speech in the presence of God. Back to this temple imagery that Paul was talking about earlier where in the temple, the presence of God had these surrounding walls and dividing partitions that would keep people from getting too close because of his holiness. But now that the thing, now that Jesus has died and has been risen, the thing that we think should separate us from God is what ought to draw us closer because that is what puts his grace on display in our lives. Whatever it is, friends, sexual brokenness, addiction, lying, for Paul it was murder, all of these backstories that bring us shame that make you think God could never accept me, God looks at you and says, what a beautiful story to illustrate my grace. Paul says, if you don't have to be ashamed of your brokenness separating you from the presence of God, then don't lose sleep over me being in prison. (laughs) Verse 13, he says, I ask y'all not to lose heart over what I am suffering for y'all, which is y'all's glory. (laughs) Rather than being a disqualification Paul being in prison is a confirmation that God has him exactly where he wants him to be, and the same is true of us today. God's wisdom is to tell the story of our lives in such a way that these hidden parts, these parts that expose brokenness and pain that need to be revealed at the right time because these are the greatest displays of God's grace in our lives. God is the master storyteller, and these plot twists come at the point that creates the greatest amount of satisfaction in those hearing the story. Paul is saying that about the mystery of the Gentiles becoming part of God's people. He's saying that about his own life, that he was a persecutor of the church and is now its greatest messenger. And God today wants to reveal a plot twist in our own lives that is going to make us effective messengers. It's probably the part that you would like to remain a mystery but we are not the ones telling the story. What we'd rather conceal, God wants to reveal, but that is not where the plot twist ends because it's not just my story, it's our story. The message of the gospel can only truly be proclaimed by the church. It's the collective nature of the message that makes it such a compelling story. It's all of our stories with their own arcs, plot twists, climaxes that lead us to become part of one bigger story that God's telling. And it's all of our desire to be wrapped up in that kind of story and get lost in it. But the plot twist is that in order to become one, to become unified, We have to follow the pattern of Jesus' story. We have to give up our lives as he did. We have to surrender our personal freedom, our autonomy, our idea of what is our own authority, our own script, and we have to be formed in the image of Jesus who gave his life for us. That is how God's power is made perfect. It's our weakness. Let's pray.